0: Well, thank you to those who were involved in serving us that uh, delicious meal. You've nourished my body. Now perhaps I can return the favor and and nourish your hearts. Uh, I'm glad uh, that we have the opportunity to continue our discussion. Like I said, my purpose in these two sessions is to give you two complementary topics. And we spoke this morning at length about the need to have clarity on the biblical model for discipleship. Now the question I have for you as we continue in our second session is, well, how are we going to effectively pursue discipleship? Now that we understand what it is, how are we going to pursue discipleship if we are not able to apply the Word of God to our own lives or to the lives of, the, of others. As I'm sure you can understand, bridging from session one now into session two, if we're going to be on this lifelong process of pursuing Christ, if discipleship is going to be a growth in sanctification that we're going to pursue, and we're going to pursue along with others, we need to be able to apply God's Word to our lives and to the lives of others. As you know well, I trust, in a church like Living Hope, God doesn't speak to us through dreams or visions or spine tingles or liver shivers. He speaks to us through the Word of God. But He does so in particular through this dual authorship of God The Spirit authoring the God breathed, God inspired scriptures, but doing it by superintending the process of a human author's work, too. And so, an original human author wrote to an original audience. None of us are among those original audiences. Living Hope is not the church in Colossae. It's not one of the seven churches in Revelation. It's not the church in Rome. You're not the ones to whom Mark penned his gospel. So none of us as the original recipients, as the original audience, are in a position to be able to make a direct one-for-one application. We have not been directly instructed by the Apostle Paul to greet one another with a holy kiss. So how do we bridge from the original context into the context we find ourselves in today? That's what we're going to be discussing. And unfortunately it's all too common that this is a neglected skill within churches, even churches that enjoy sound theology. Because theology is not application. It is part of the process of application. It, it's part of that Romans 12, let your mind be conformed not to the world, but to the word process. So no doubt, our thinking needs to change. But changed thinking is not an end in itself itself. Our thinking needs to change so that our hearts can change so that our lives change. Change into conformity to the will of God and to the glory of His name. And so there needs to be this process of not just understanding the original intent of the author, which is the process that we would call exegesis or interpretation And then systematizing that into what we would call either systematic theology or biblical theology. That's not enough. We need to go the step further of taking that exegesis, taking that theology, and bridging into the context that we find ourselves in today. And to do it in a way that is accurate and responsible. 2 Timothy 2.15 Which I've quoted already today is a call upon all who would teach God's word, and indirectly, a call upon all of us as we handle God's word, that we rightly handle or accurately handle God's word. And I love that Paul used the word handle there. He didn't just say that you rightly interpret God's word, which would have limited the scope of that command. But as you handle God's Word, it includes interpretation, but doubtless also application. And so we have to be diligent to ensure that our interpretation is accurate, but likewise that our application is accurate. And I think even in churches that have sound theology, we can misapply that theology, which then harms people and dishonors God. There are a couple of key terms that we're going to be talking about and distinguishing in this session. We're going to be talking about the three distinctions between meaning and significance and relevance. If you don't understand the distinction between those, that's fine. That's what we're here to discuss this, uh, discuss today. Or well, to use parallel terms, we're here to discuss the difference between interpretation an implication, and application. Those are distinct steps in bridging the context that the original audience was in and the one that we find ourselves in today. And all of this is in the pursuit of the truth of God's Word applied to the lives of God's people. We're pursuing the truth of God's Word Applied to the lives of God's people. <laughs> John MacArthur said, and I was soundly rebuked last night for not quoting John MacArthur, so take note. True biblical preaching ought to be a life changing endeavor. The conscientious preacher does not merely seek to impart abstract doctrine or plain facts to his people. He also pleads with them for heartfelt and earnest obedience. After all, to be hearers of the word without being doers is to be dangerously deceived, James 122. And one sure way for preachers to cultivate hearers only is to deliver nothing more than dry, didactic lectures, dull performances for the intellectually curious. This is not biblical preaching. No matter how sound the teaching may be on an academic level. Obviously, he's speaking to pastors, but it's true by implication as well for all of us as we study God's Word. Jay Adams, if you're familiar with him, he's kind of the godfather of uh, biblical preaching. Biblical counseling obviously has a great concern to see God's Word applied to God's people, uh, but he wrote a book called Truth Applied. Application in Preaching. And he wrote, Truth was not given in the abstract. It was given in applied form. And So God's truth should be preached in an applied form. The apostles did not preach doctrine as a system, but to convey God's saving and sanctifying grace in Christ. When you preach truth the way it was revealed, the entire sermon will be Applicatory in effect, and so, friends, I trust you can see the need, and I trust I don't need to make an exhaustive case for the need for us to apply God's word. We need to do that in how we study the text ourselves, and we we need to do that corporately as we sit under the preaching of God's word. And of course, every preacher does labor to do exactly what Jay Adams and John MacArthur are calling them to do and, and be applicational in their preaching. In fact, one of my favorite definitions of expository preaching is that it includes both the explanation of God's Word and the application of God's Word. Because preaching that is only explanation... Is not preaching. And preaching that is only application is not expository. If you want to do expository preaching, you both need to explain, to exposit the word, and you need to apply. Otherwise, you're just teaching, you're just lecturing. But there is an exhortation, there is an authoritative proclamation by God's servant to God's people that their lives come under the life-changing effect, the sanctifying effect of God's word. And so every every preacher does strive to make their preaching applicational. And yet, no preacher can authoritatively and exhaustively apply it to every circumstance that every hearer of their sermon faces. They don't have the time And they don't have the intimate knowledge of everything that you face in your circumstances and in your heart. So even though there is the striving on behalf of the preacher to get his people to apply, the people still need to possess the skill to go even further in the application of that word into the details of their lives. It's a skill that we must all possess as we study God's word ourselves and as we study God's word collectively in the corporate context of the local church, we need to be able to accurately handle Scripture by accurately interpreting it and by accurately applying it. And as we learned this morning, that is the process of discipleship. Now, there very clearly is a need to understand how to apply God's Word accurately. I don't know if uh, many of you have heard those stereotypical sermons on David and Goliath, right? I mean, you just need to slay the giant of your financial troubles, or praise Jesus, you pick up those five smooth stones of his victory, and you slay that giant of depression, Whatever it is that is troubling your life that is keeping you from fulfilling your full destiny, in Jesus' name, you take those anointed stones and you cut that that demon down. I mean, you've you've heard those and and worse still. And I, I wish that such bad application, and I really do trust that a church like Living Hope can identify that as bad application. I really do wish that that was limited to the fringe elements, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's probably T.D. Jakes or Benny Hinn or some other crazy guy like that. And, I mean, surely they do distort God's word like that. But even within churches that we would expect to be sound in their doctrine and application. One particularly horrifying uh, example I have, not so much in that it presents a perverse doctrine, but it's just... ...wildly inaccurate in terms of the intent of the author comes to you courtesy of J.D. Greer. If you're not familiar with him, he is or was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest uh, and historically uh, very faithful uh, evangelical denomination in the United States. has a profound impact on the church in North America and throughout the world through their missions and endeavors... Historically known as people of the book who prized God's word and held it in higher regard, and so it's no small matter for us to note that a man like Greer would direct us to Second Kings chapter five. And I'd ask you to turn there just so you can have the context of what we are looking at. We're not going to study this; this is just a, an illustration. But Second Kings chapter five. And if you're familiar with the story, you know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, just scan the first couple of verses. 2 Kings chapter 5 is the story of Naaman, who was the commander of the king of Aram. And he was a great man and a highly revered leader. Now, in this time, as the text records, the Arameans had gone out. And as part of their conquest of God's people... Naaman came to possess a slave who was a Jewish girl. Now, Naaman had leprosy. And the slave girl knew that there was a prophet among God's people to whom she could send her master to be healed. This is a great story. Listen to how J.D. Greer applies the story. He says, secondly, we need to look at a suffering servant. And this is a direct quote from him. Most people miss this character in the story, but she, the servant girl, is arguably the most important one, the Hebrew slave girl. This is a preteen girl who has been the victim of human trafficking, separated from her family, who may be dead, and made to serve her captain, Naaman. Remarkably, though, this girl seems to have forgiven Naaman, When she learns of his leprosy, instead of reveling in his just deserts, she offers help. She was suffering because of his sin, and her suffering became his salvation. The same is true of us. If we are saved, it is only by a suffering servant. This girl was suffering involuntarily, but Jesus suffered voluntarily for us. She had been stripped from her parents, but Jesus left his father of his own accord. She was merely a girl. Jesus was a prince, the highest of rulers who became a slave for us. She pointed Naaman to a river, but Jesus spilled his blood to become the river that would wash away our sins. And friends, if you're not discerning, that sounds heart-stirring. But it has nothing to do with why this account is placed here in Scripture. It's not there to foreshadow the ministry of Christ. This is one of the great errors we find in application. It's called the Christocentric hermeneutic. And the way you interpret every scripture Christocentrically leads you to apply it in the same way. This is not a call for us to see and to savor Jesus Christ as a, in the type of the suffering servant. So, if a great man like J.D. Greer can misapply Scripture, we need to give heed to faithfully apply Scripture ourselves. As much as we give attention to the faithful interpretation, let's also give our efforts to the faithful application of God's Word. Now, this would only be an easy task if there was... Unity, in terms of how we should approach this task. Much like this morning session when I spoke about some of the different models uh, on discipleship, there are different models on interpretation. So we're not going to go into detail, but just listen to some of the, the names. And this, these are titles coming to you out of Grant Osborne's The Hermeneutical Spiral. This is a massive tome on hermeneutics. He says uh, there are at least the following models. There's the synthetic method, the analytical method, the history of religions method, the diachronic and tradition critical methods, the Christological method, the confessional method, the narrative method, the multiplex method, and then a chapter that he calls the problem of a unifying center. Wow, which one are you supposed to pick? And I mean, honestly, it sounds like you need a PhD to understand each one of those. That's not what uh, we need to trouble our minds with, because applying God's Word need not be a confusing and unclear practice. How we handle God's Word is actually something that we can have great confidence and great clarity in if we follow Reasonable and responsible steps in application. So, we have reasonable and responsible steps in interpretation, and likewise, we have reasonable and responsible steps in application. And I'm going to lead you through nine of those steps. And it's not that it's such a complicated process, it's just I want to serve you with clarity. And much like I leaned on someone this morning, I'm going to lean on someone else this afternoon, and this is uh, dependent on Roy Zuck and his book, Bible Interpretation. So if you want to study this in more detail, please go see Zuck, Z-U-C-K, and his book. But before we go into the detail of some of these points, I, I just want to point out that we have shelves and shelves of books that have been written on how to interpret Scripture. But you have to try really hard to find one on how to apply Scripture. Even to find a chapter on how to apply Scripture. We all know that we need to do it. And perhaps all of those fancy sounding academic methods are part of the problem. But even for those who are giving their life's attention to interpreting God's Word such that they they might write a book on it even to them there is sufficient discomfort or sufficient confusion or the absence of clarity that they avoid the subject. If application was something that we didn't struggle with, there would be far more written on it. And so even among the professionals, there is this bewildering need to bring clarity into the process of Accurately and faithfully applying God's word. And so, that in, in brief is what we're going to give ourselves to for the remainder of this session. Um, as I did title the, the session, it's called Handle with Care Faithfully Applying the Word of Truth. We do need to handle God's word carefully and make sure that we complete that process by applying it faithfully. <clears throat> so, firstly, we need to build our application on interpretation. That's the first principle we have. Second, I'm just going to read them off, and then we'll go into detail. We need to determine what was expected of the original audience. Third, we need to base our applications on elements that present-day readers share with the original audience. Fourthly, we need we need to recognize how God's working varies in different ages. Fifthly, we need to determine what is normative for today. Sixthly, we need to see the principle inherent. Inherent in the text. Seventhly, we need to think of the principle as an implication of the text. Eighthly, we need to think of specific action responses. And ninthly, we need to rely on the Spirit. And it's really not as complicated as even listing our nine points makes it sound. But clarity is served in the details of the process, and so let's walk through it step by step. The first step is, as I said, to build your application on Interpretation. This is what Roy Zuck says. She says, Unfortunately, many people go to the Bible for a blessing or for guidance for the day, ignoring the interpretive process altogether. In their intense desire to find something devotional or practical, Christians sometimes distort the original meaning of some passages of Scripture. To bypass the, perso- sorry, the purpose or the original meaning of the passage, looking for a subjective impression, can lead to serious misuse of the Bible. Without proper interpretive controls, people can attempt to make the Bible mean almost anything they want to mean. Friends, the point that Zuck is making, the point that I want to impress upon you is that as we begin the process of application, know that the process of application is in and of itself Part of a broader process. We don't begin with application. We don't put the cart before the horse. Application comes after interpretation. In fact, as I said to you at the beginning, we're going to be talking about those three different stages there is interpretation, implication, and application. Interpretation is the process of understanding what it means. Implication is the process of drawing out principles from that interpretation. And finally, application is taking those principles into the details of our lives. But is, Zuck is right, sorry, Zuck is right, in reminding us that we must start with interpretation. Interpretation provides the guardrails within which we operate with our application. If you've ever gone 10-pin bowling, and you're no good at it, or you've gone with small kids, you know that you can put on bumper rails, right? So you don't bowl the ball and see it go off the side into the gutter. Well, interpretation does that for our application. It provides guardrails within which we operate, so that we make sure that our application doesn't, metaphorically speaking, go off into the gutter. So, begin with application. Sorry, begin with interpretation when you start your application. Application should be based on the meaning that is found in the intent of the author. The words that he writes to his original audience are the controlling mechanism for what he meant. The words are where we find the expression of his intent, and the intent is where we find the meaning. As one author said, sound interpretation is the only adequate basis for relevant application. I'll give you an example. God wrestled with Jacob in Genesis thirty-two. I think we're familiar with that text, right? If we're going to understand this accurately, we understand that what's happening in that text is. Yahweh is seeking the submission of Jacob's will to his own. It's a faulty interpretation to say that what Jacob was doing is he is wrestling with God until he gets what he desires. Jacob didn't wrestle in his prayer life with God until God gave him what was on his heart. If we misinterpret it, then we come up with inaccurate application. We start telling people that we, like Jacob, need to wrestle with God in our prayer life until He gives us what we're asking for. It's not there in the pages of Scripture to say, grab hold of Yahweh and wrestle with Him until He gives you what He wants. Rather, if we interpret it accurately, It's a call to submit our will to His and the opposite point is then applied. Pray to God, but submit your desires to His sovereign will for your life. Interpretation, though, is key to faithful application. So, firstly, we need to build application on interpretation, but secondly, we need to determine... What was expected of the original audience? What was expected of the original audience? Like I said, there were historic authors that wrote to a historic audience. And they had very particular expectations in mind when they wrote to those people. There were ways in which they were anticipating that their lives should change. Now, often there were explicit commands. There were direct applications that those authors would make. So for instance, in Ephesus, Paul told them that as members of the body of Christ uh, they should um, they should pursue holiness among their relations with the opposite gender. Not even a hint of sexual immorality as Paul writes, There's an explicit way in which he anticipated that their life would change, and once you interpret that accurately, you're able to draw the application accurately for our present day context. The explicit command is easily turned into an application for us, where we understand that we too are meant to pursue sexual purity. But sometimes there are implicit or indirect commands, indirect expectations. These passages inform the reader, instead of directing the reader. For instance, we have the book of Proverbs. Proverbs gives us indications of what to expect when we follow certain uh, when we follow certain patterns of life. It's not a command, but there is an implication that goes along very clearly with the command. So again, the author writes. And while not making an explicit statement, but rather having an indirect expectation of how his audience's life should change, we understand that in order to apply that. But we cannot apply it to us before we see how it was applied to them. We need to understand how it was applied to the original audience. So we begin by interpreting Then we move on to understanding application to the original audience. And thirdly, we base application on elements that present-day readers share with the original audience. In other words, we look for the common ground between them and us. We need to see where the bridges exist that span the context that the original audience was in and our context that we find ourselves in today. There is commonality between the original audiences and us, and that allows us to make valid and accurate applications. For instance, Colossians 3.2, Paul says, set your minds on things above. Or in verse 9, do not lie to each other. Well, we know that that's as common to us today as it was 2,000 years ago in the church of Colossae. Because there are elements that we share. We understand that we should set our minds on things above because we share that common identity as believers and should therefore anchor our thinking upon our Heavenly Father. Likewise, because we have that common identity with one another, we should speak truthfully to one another. 2,000 years of history doesn't change that commonality. However, there are times in which we share less common ground. For instance, God commanded the nation of Israel to pick up manna while they were wandering through the Sinai deserts. How much common ground do we share with the nation of Israel wandering through the desert for 40 years? Not very much. And so while it's clear to us that the common ground says we should Think of heavenly things and speak truthfully to one another, we understand that the lack of common ground also tells us that we shouldn't go around outside looking to pick up our daily food that God drops on the ground miraculously. Another example, God told Noah to build an ark. That's not a direct application that we need to make because God's not going to wipe out the earth Through a global flood. So, again, the lack of common ground tells us that we cannot apply that principle directly. So, we need to understand where we share common ground and where we don't share common ground with the original audience. So, we need to begin by interpreting, then, we need to move on to understand what was expected of the original audience, and then see if we have anything in common with that original audience. And then fourthly, as we move on in the applicational process, we need to recognize how God's working varies in different ages. The different context that we have is not just in terms of the circumstances we face, global floods and wanderings in the desert, but there are different dispensations, ways in which God works among His people ways in which God pours out His grace to fulfill His purposes. We understand that there is an old covenant and a new covenant, and that God works differently with the people of Israel through the Mosaic covenant than He does with the Gentile church through the new covenant. There are both common ground that we share with those different dispensations and uncommon ground. For instance, commonly we're told in the New Testament to love our neighbor as ourselves. We share that in common with Old Testament Israel who in Leviticus 19:18 was given that command for the first time. But we see it repeated again under the New Covenant in Matthew 5:43. Now, theology matters, though, because if we don't understand the distinction in how God works in the different eras, in the different dispensations, we're going to make false applications. We need to understand that theologically we are not under the Old Covenant. We are not bound by the Mosaic Law. And so everything from ritual sacrifices to circumcision to the clothes that we wear, the cleaning rituals that we go through, and the way that we handle public health, as it is described under the Mosaic law, is something that we are not bound by as New Testament Gentile believers. An example of that is that you know, there were a number of foods that were banned because of God's laws of cleanliness under the Levitical instructions of chapter 11. But as Peter experiences a heavenly vision on his call to go meet with Cornelius in Acts 10, he's instructed by Christ that those laws are no longer valid. The New Testament Gentile Church, according to 1 Timothy 4.4, is not bound by the dietary requirements that an Old Testament Jew under the Mosaic law would be bound by. And we can understand that the application is different because our dispensations are different. We need to understand and recognize that God works in varying ways in different ages. And so we've begun by interpreting We've understood how the lives of the original audience are meant to change. We've looked for common ground or lack thereof with them and then understood how God works differently in the different ages and so we could expect different ways in which God would work with them and with us. But that leads us to the fifth requirement as we apply the text. We need to determine what is normative today. We need to be careful not to generalize for today everything that happened in biblical times. Of course, this is more apparent for us in the narrative portions of Scripture, especially the ones we find in the Old Testament. Richard Mayhew, for instance, says in his uh, apt caution to us, We are not expecting a trip to the third heaven like Paul's in 2 Corinthians 12 nor do we believe that God restocks the food supply of those who feed traveling preachers as he did for the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. Leprosy patients do not dip seven times in a river to be cured like in 2 Kings 5, nor do we throw sticks on the ground and expect them to turn into serpents according to Exodus 4 because none of those events are normative today. We don't expect to see those in normal operation in our day and age. Just because something is described doesn't mean that it is prescribed. We talk about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive requirements. Another author, McQuilken, Right to be authoritative as a model for behavior, a God-given norm for all people of all time. Any historic event must be so des- designated by an. Author- Let me begin that again. Any historic event must be so designated by an authorized spokesman for God. That an event was reported to have truly happened does not necessarily make it a revelation for God's universal. Will. What he's saying is just because you read of something happening doesn't mean that we're required to do what was described. If we are, it will likely be restated as a clear principle elsewhere. Uh, An example that we'd all, I think, agree on the Old Testament is filled with descriptions of polygamous relationships even among some of God's most favored people. David, the man after God's own heart, had multiple wives. And yet nowhere is that endorsed in the Old Testament, nor is it given as a normative principle in the New Testament. And so we would be wrong to read the descriptive account of polygamy in the Old Testament and imagine that it is endorsed by God for practice by us in the New Testament. That is not a normative principle for us today, and so we cannot apply that into our lives or the lives of others. So as we move on from recognizing how God works in different ways, we do come to this requirement that we understand what's normative today. So understanding that He works differently in different eras, we need to know what's normal in our own era. Once we understand what's normal in our own era, we can move on to the sixth principle, which is to see the principle that is inherent in the text. So if we move towards finding something that is normal, we get to the point that we can draw out a principle, a principle that is true for all people at all times and in all places. We are moving from interpretation to, to implication the principles before we can move to the final step of application which is the details. Now of course sometimes scripture gives us specific commands and those are easy to principalize. Do not commit adultery is easier to draw a principle out of. Don't commit adultery. But we look for principles in every text that we apply. Sometimes the principles are not as clear and explicit. But the principles that we derive must stem directly from scripture and not be something that we read into or impose on the text. By way of illustration, Jesus said in Matthew 5:22 That we should not call anyone rakah, which was an Aramaic term of insult or contempt. Now, obviously, we shouldn't go around calling Aramaic people the Aramaic term of contempt, rakah. But that's not the principle. The principle is that for all people at all times and all places, We ought not to use any term of contempt. And so you can see the implication is we should use our words in ways that do not insult or harm others. The principle is sometimes distinct from the explicit words of the texts, but as one author said, the principle is a generalized statement deduced from the specific original situation then and applicable through different specific and yet similar situations now. So it's a generalization. And often we need to check if it is stated elsewhere in Scripture. It's a wonderful way for us to check the principle that we are deriving, to ensure that we are being Accurate in how we draw implications from the text, we need to check for the consistency of the script, the consistency of the principle with other scriptures. We don't end the process of application with an implication, though. An implication is still a principle that applies to all people at all times and all places, and we haven't yet made the bridge all the way through to our lives in our time and our place. But it does continue along this course of us finding out what is normative for today and then getting to the principle that is inherent in the text, the generalization that is true for all people, all times, all places. Then we need to think of this implication that becomes a bridge... application. We need to think of the principle as an implication that becomes a bridge for our application. In 2 Samuel 16, we see how David chose not to retaliate against Shimei as he cursed him while he fled from Jerusalem. There is an implication for us to consider that allows us to build a bridge into our own contexts the principle becomes a bridge of application and even though narratives can be tricky once we see the normative principle the implication that becomes the bridge is clear the principle that may be drawn out from David's interaction with Shimei is that believers should not retaliate against those who would do them harm? Again, quoting from McQuilkin, he says that every historic event recorded in Scripture has some implication. Otherwise, it will not be included in Holy Writ. He goes on to add Scripture leaves many historic events uninterpreted, but of many it renders a judgment. The behavior is either commended or condemned. In some of those instances, Scripture even goes further. It gives a reason for the commendation or condemnation. Some interpreted events are the legitimate raw material for refining general principles. For example, if Abraham is held up as an example of faith in the sacrifice of Isaac, then we are safe in considering his act commendatory, although we may not have thought so on our own. And so as we build this bridge for application, we can see that the implication is the bridge that spans the context from the original audience to our own. And in narratives where it becomes tricky, we need to see that the way in which the narrator frames the event is often the key to ensuring that the implication we've drawn out is accurate. The way in which Joseph suffered faithfully at the hands of the Egyptians is clearly commended by the author, even if he's not stating it explicitly. And so the way in which he suffers faithfully is an implication for us to build into application. And as we said in our previous point, we can check our Principle, our implication, by cross referencing it with Hebrews 11 and the faith that the Old Testament saints had. We're almost there at completing the bridge and allowing us to apply the text to our own lives. Because once we have drawn out the inherent principle, And seeing the implication as the bridge between the two contexts of the original audience and us, then we need to move into specific action responses. We need to think through specific action responses. We move from implication to application. We're taking the principle and we're moving to the details. We've interpreted, we've found the implication, and now we're going to Apply, Or to use the other terms that I introduced to us, we've discovered the meaning, we've seen the significance, which is synonymous to the implication, but now we're going to see the relevance, how it affects our lives in the nitty gritty details that we live in. A number of theologians, including Terry Hall and our own dear John MacArthur, use the SPECS approach to thinking through those specific action responses. SPECS stands for sin to be forsaken, promises to be claimed, an example to be followed, a command to be obeyed, or stumbling block to be avoided. I'll give that to you again. As we're thinking through specific action responses, as we're grabbing hold of the principle, the implication, and bending it towards our own context like a bridge between the original audience and ourselves, we need to think through specific actions that need to change. There can either be a sin to be forsaken, a promise to be claimed, an example to be followed, a command to be obeyed, or a stumbling block or a hindrance to be avoided. So you think through specs as a way of thinking through the specific action responses that we have to these implications. Of course, you're not limited to specs. Another author and theologian, Andy Naselli, has four steps in his own approach. He speaks of thinking through, firstly, duty. What should I do? What is my duty? He says this category is probably what most people think of when they apply the Bible. So firstly, what is my duty? But secondly, think through character. Who should I be? That is, how can I become the person or obtain the character that lets me do what is right? Only by the grace of God can you have the right character. Thirdly, you need to look to goals. 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 To what causes should we devote our life energy? That is, what goals should we pursue? Helping people set the right kind of long-term and short-term goals helps orient them so they routinely think and do the right things now. Fourthly, think through discernment. Discernment. How can we distinguish truth from error? That is, how can we gain discernment? Discernment. Often the ethical questions that we face are really a wisdom issue. In other words, there's no clear cut answer, but rather in many issues in life, we need to make case by case decisions based on the wisdom that we get from God. So whether you use the specs approach or whether you use Naselli's duty, character, goals, and discernment approach or any other approach that you might favor, you need to think through the specific action responses that you have to the text. Finally, we complete the process by relying on the Holy Spirit. By relying on the Holy Spirit. And to be truthful, this is also where we begin the process because none of us can rightly interpret the Word of God without the Spirit of God. We're dependent upon the ministry of God's Spirit called the illumination of the Spirit. He makes our minds understand and our hearts to obey the Word of God. And so as our process of application began with interpretation, it carries all the way through and concludes even into application by relying on the Holy Spirit. We must be sure that the entire process of studying, interpreting, and applying the Bible is one that is done in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. One uh, author, Fred Kluster, wrote, Understanding Scripture requires more than an intellectual grasp of the historic setting of the text or the literal structure of the passage. Heart understanding demands that the heart responses Sorry heart understanding demands the heart response in the totality of one's being to the living triune god roy zuck makes a similar point he says make a firm decision to follow through with the application ask the lord to give you the desire and determination to carry out the application ask for the lord's enabling applying the scriptures about sorry, applying the scriptures should not be attempted in our own strength The Christian life must be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we depend on Him to interpret. We depend on Him to apply. And even as we understand what the application is that we need to make, we depend on Him to give us the grace to make that application, to follow through and to live through the ways in which our lives need to change in our present context. All those action responses, whether it be a sin to forsake, a promise to claim, an example to follow, a command to obey, a stumbling block to avoid, none of that can be done in our own strength or by our own power. We must do it in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Now there is much that we can talk about and time is running away from us. So I'd like to recap and then give you the opportunity to ask any questions, make any comments, or pose any criticisms that you'd like so this serves you well. While it is perhaps a little bit more structured and somewhat more academic, so we're leaning into the concept of a Lerman rather heavily in this session, we need to apply God's Word accurately and live faithfully according to God's Word, if we're going to fulfill the command to be disciples. We need to be able to apply God's Word in order to be faithful disciples, and so the process of that application is to build our application and interpretation. We start by faithfully interpreting God's Word, and then we move on to understanding what was expected of the original recipients of that Word. We need to find out where we share common ground with that original audience and then we need to recognize that while there is common ground or lack thereof, it's also because God works differently at different ages in different dispensations. And so because God works differently, we need to determine what is normative for today and once we do so, we can find the principle that is inherent in the text. The principle will give us The implication that bridges the context of the original audience to our own and allows us to move into the details of thinking through specific action steps, specific action responses. And all of this, from beginning through the middle to the end, is done in reliance on the Holy Spirit. None of this is difficult, none of this is profound. And none of this need be confusing, despite all those many highfalutin titles that we give to the various methodologies. This is how you faithfully apply God's Word. This is how you ensure that as a disciple, your life accords with God's Word. And as you counsel one another in the process of discipleship, how you give faithful counsel to others as to how their life should change to the glory of God. So, with that, friends, let me know if you have any questions or comments or criticisms that you'd like us to talk through now. The floor is yours. I'm not that good a teacher that you all have got no questions, I know that. Mm-hmm. that's a really great question. And, and I promise you, every preacher who takes seriously his responsibility to preach God's Word in a, an expository fashion wrestles through that exact question of how much application do I need to do. And, you know, even if you had to analyze MacArthur's preaching, he doesn't uh, emphasize application the way that we might think. So, it's a really good question and I, I just want to give you a couple bullet points in response to that and we can talk through it in more detail if, if you'd like but firstly I would argue as I did briefly in that explanation of, of what true expository preaching is that there must be some effort to show the people how their lives would change in light of God's word otherwise you're just teaching you're just lecturing preaching by its very definition aims to see the lives of God's people change. And so there must be some way in which the sermon is geared towards showing and enabling God's people to change in light of God's word. So I would argue based on the definition of what preaching is and the, the model that we have of that expository model in the New Testament that You need to go at least as far as the implication stage as a preacher, right? So, I use two somewhat parallel terms implication and significance. Okay, so that's midway through the, the point of application where I'm at least drawing out the principles. I think that's part of the preacher's responsibility to explicitly state the principles or the significance of the text, and then for the audience to go the final step to say, Well, I understand the principle. Let me put it into the details of my life now as part of this process of responsibly applying God's Word. But I do also think there is room for the preacher that wants to model application for his people by giving a couple of select examples. Now my point to start out the session was no preacher can give an authoritative exhaustive list of applications as you yourself said. It's impossible. I don't know enough people. I don't know enough circumstances. And I don't have enough time. But I can make one or two examples. I don't necessarily have to in every instance. But what I do when I choose to is I model the complete process beginning to end of interpretation, implication, application. And what I'm doing there is I'm training my people into how to do it, I'm modeling it for them. Because part of what expository preaching does is it not only teaches people truth, but it teaches them how to handle God's Word by example. And so different preachers with different personalities, different approaches, different uh, levels of giftedness will make different levels of efforts to illustrate, exemplify, and complete that applicational process. A guy like Mark Deva has got a great applicational grid that he uses where he talks about how it it's, has things to consider that are unique to salvation history, for the non-Christian, the public, the, for what it tells us about Christ, how it tells us we should change for our work, our, our marriage, our individual Christian, our local church. So he's got this whole grid that you work through. And so he's one of the guys that emphasizes more of the practical, complete process. MacArthur gives you the principles, the implications, and leaves you to do the rest of the work yourself. But I'd say, and this is a long-winded answer to your question, you have to go at least that far, and sometimes even further, um, in order to be a good and a faithful shepherd and a faithful expository preacher. But the particulars of how you do that is left largely up to you as the preacher to your preference and your skill. Yeah, Great question, by the way. Yeah. Sure. So uh, again, another great question. I, I would say first, there's a whole other discussion that we need to have about hermeneutics. So uh, for those who are familiar with the term, hermeneutics is really the the rules that you use to interpret scripture. So as you're as you're looking for the meaning, and we started this process after that. So we we've looked at implication and application, but the very first step is that interpretive step. You're searching for meaning. You're trying to discover the original authorial intent, and you do that through the rules that you apply, which are your rules of hermeneutics. And we would argue, those who hold to our convictions about how to handle Scripture, we would argue for a literal or a grammatical, historical set of hermeneutical principles that we would apply. We need to have a whole discussion on what those look like. Because even among the different camps of interpretive rules, we'll all say, oh yeah, I I do a literal interpretation. But what I mean by literal and what he means by literal are two different things. So there's a whole discussion that we need to have along those lines. But assuming that we are in agreement on our hermeneutics, that next step of how how do you actually put them into practice, how do you interpret the text... Especially if you don't have access to the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. I think one of the things that I really encourage my people to do, and it's one of the reasons why we preach from an English translation, is that our Bibles, our translations today, are by and large incredibly accurate and trustworthy. And I'm talking about those that have more of a word-for-word, formal equivalence approach to how they translate the text. So I use the Legacy Standard Bible, but the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, I mean even to a degree the the New International Version, all of these, the Christian Standard Bible, Holman Christian Standard Bible, have at their core a desire to do a formal equivalence of what is in the Hebrew and the Greek and bring it into the English language. And they do a good job for the most part. You might have a couple of points that you you might argue with, but by and large, they're good translations that we can trust. And in 98 out of 100 times that we are digging into the text, the interpretive key is not found in our knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. Because we have accurate translations that we can rely on. Now, not every language group has that, but especially in English, we have the ability to go to a formal uh, equivalent translation and find 98 out of 100 times, and again, statistics, I'm just making something up, but I'm giving you the idea, that the key is not found in those original languages. The key is found in the other disciplines of observation and context and, and that kind of thing that we would put into place dur- during the interpretive process. It's only very rarely that the key to understanding the whole text is hidden in a mistranslation of a Greek noun or the understanding of the, the nuance of a Greek verb or uh, that kind of thing. More often than not, what the Hebrew and the Greek does for a preacher who has that skill is it allows him to fill out detail or nuance or even sometimes make more a faithful application um, because just the, the, especially in Hebrew, it gives you this wonderful, uh, the Hebrew mind is a very poetic mind. You know, the the Greeks are the scientists, the Hebrews are the poets, and so they use a language that, that relies very heavily on imagery, and sometimes the imagery is actually key to unlocking some of the ways that you can apply it. And so it, it, it doesn't change the doctrines that we derive from the process. It just helps us to flesh out some of the minor details. But I guarantee you, if you were stranded on a, on a desert island and the only thing you had was an English Bible, if you were faithful in how you went through your hermeneutics and observed and gave attention to the context and gave attention to the the meaning of of the words, you'd do just as well 98 out of 100 times with your English as you would if you were locked up in Oxford and had access to every single Greek and Hebrew resource under the sun. So all that, let me summarize, that was long-winded. Trust your Bibles is what I'm saying. Unless you have the message, in which case throw that away and buy a proper translation. Any other questions? All right. I hope this has served you well. I I know this tended more towards the lecture side of the Lerman concept, um, but I hope that those points really help you see the practical step-by-step approach of moving from interpretation to implication to application, because it's a key discipline. We need to be able to do it. We need to be able to apply as faithfully as what we interpret faithfully. And so I hope it served. If it didn't serve, then forgive me. If there is any way that I can clarify what I've said, please find me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you some more. But again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. And I can promise you this. I'm going to leave here more encouraged than what you are. So thank you for just being a wonderful testimony of the Lord's work here at Living Hope. and. To see what the Lord is doing in you and through you is tremendously encouraging for us to, to see and be part of, and it's a privilege, so thank you all.